Well, welcome to the podcast, Mission Driven You. My name is Will Sampson. I am a social scientist and a change coach who helps mission-driven entrepreneurs and executives create good and do well in the world. So thank you for joining today. I'm excited to share this conversation with Ryan Linder. And this is one of those great accidents of, of fate, of fortune, because we were going to get together and talk all about his work as a career and development coach. And we talked about that. And we talked about the work that he does with individuals and organizations. But what really came up was the power of leading with uncertainty. So Ryan's story is overcoming a set of uncertain experiences early in life, earlier in life than most of us do, and having to sort of deal with that and, and find a way to move forward. So I'm super excited to share this conversation with you today. And if you're ready, let's get started. Well, welcome to the Mission Driven You. And I get the privilege today of talking to Ryan Lindner. Ryan is a personal and career development coach. He's a trainer. He works with clients and top organizations around the world. And we're going to hear about his story because after two sudden unexplained cardiac arrests at a young age, he really had to look for different perspectives. And he, he reached out to his clients to understand that. And he's now conducted thousands of coaching sessions. So there's going to be some kind of mastermind in coaching as well. And he's also led operations for major leadership and organizational change company. And he manages learning and development projects for companies now who want to reshape their customer experience. So like a wealth of topics we can talk about. So I am super excited to welcome you here to the podcast, Ryan. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. You bet. So we always start with one question because we're really focused. You know, we've rebranded the podcast, but we maintain some of that DNA of interdependence. And so I always start with the same question, which is tell me a story or tell the listeners a story of someone that made a difference for you. It could be a parent, mentor, teacher, somebody that when you look back, you're like, yeah, they, they, were, they were a big difference maker for me. I think it was uh, someone I did not realize was so impactful until much later. It was a former mentor I worked with who was a real you know, prominent leader of a startup company. Uh, he worked for many companies, uh, primarily in hospitality, some well-known hotels and things like that. But there was something about him, again, that I didn't realize until later I really got it once I became more of a leader myself. And, and and led teams. You know, I I think when you work with a lot of organizations, they get into this thing where they're very reactive. You know, they're so busy every day. You know, the calendars are full, and then it's reactive. And the sky is usually always falling. And you know, there everyone is usually in a crisis mode, uh, putting out fires, I guess, in numerous organizations. And and that's why often I get uh, opportunities there to kind of help out. But um, he always had a calmness about him. And it, it didn't matter if, you know, people around him, there could be explosions around him. And, you know, he had this way about him, this manner of speaking, which was slower. And I don't know what was real, he was really thinking, but the way that he spoke to everyone, it, it's kind of like um, power versus force, right? He had this power about him and people followed him and, and it wasn't coming from a place of force. Like he didn't have to, it was just, I don't know if it was the confidence. He trusted himself that in uncertainty, he would figure it out. And I think the ability for people to 
be okay. And I've worked with a lot of startup companies where there's abundant uncertainty. If you can be okay in uncertainty and respond, not react, in a, and you bring a calmness to it, I mean, it affected me throughout my career. So I, I would, I, I think I would point to him, no doubt. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that story. I love that. And it's always fun to ask these that question because oftentimes people think, well, I haven't thought of this person in forever, you know, and, and brings it back to mind. Yeah. yeah. That's so great. Yeah, the influence Thanks. is always kind of kind of carried with me, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And I appreciate what you said about uncertainty. We hope we hopefully we'll get back to that topic. But speaking of uncertainty, you had some uncertain experiences early in your life that were very formative. So I kind of want to start there because I want people to understand what you've come through, what you experienced earlier in life than, than people often do, and how that shaped you. So tell us your tell us your story. Yeah. I, I grew up in you know, a fantastic family. I had real bad anxiety, real bad, uh, some OCD, you know, things like that. Um, it was so bad. In fact, there were times I would just sweat, sweat through my shirt. You know, it was yeah. terrible. Like I took a shower, kind of, you know, <laughs> but, you know, so I, I sought personal development or, or, or ways, you know, certainly very introverted and, and, you know, and still am. Although my clients may be surprised with that, because I, I think there's there's certainly a difference between being introvert and being shy. There's a little difference there. But, um, you know, I certainly was, was seeking out ways to kind of help myself and kind of overcome all these things that I had to fix. And I had about a million jobs, was figuring things out in my career, not a little bit of an exaggeration, maybe not much, but Figuring it out, eventually found my way into coaching, which I did not know was a career option. Uh, I was kind of approached by someone who was building a coaching program. And eventually, I got an amazing contract and even worked with the military, did about uh, 6,000 sessions or so with the military, and just found that I could relate to a lot of people who were going through different struggles. But, you know, so I made it to this place where I felt like, you know, the earlier me, if I went back in time and said, you would be doing this, this coaching thing, I, I would be like, wow, a dream, you know? Well, I was there in my dream there for about a month. And then I dropped dead. Um, almost, I'd say I yeah. had a, a cardiac arrest. Absolutely random. Um, how, old, you know, how old were you at the time? Uh, 30. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It, it just changed my world to say the least, but um, no family history, no signs. I was driven to wellness my entire career prior. So really into wellness, fitness, nutrition, eating well, you know, doing all the things that you, you need to do. And to this day, there's no cause, there's no reason that anyone could ever point to. And I've seen world-renowned specialists. In fact, I was on a waiting list for about a year to see this world-renowned dizziness doctor. So I had a cardiac arrest. And then the following day, I had another one. So... I knew it was happening a few seconds before. So I, you know, looked to the person next to me and I just said, you know, I'm, I'm going to go down now. You know, I, I mean, I didn't know I was going to have a cardiac arrest, but I knew I was going to lose consciousness because, you know, your, your vision changes, you know, you get the tunnel and you get clammy and you can just feel it. And then, you know, you feel yourself maybe five, six seconds, something like that. And um, I woke up, uh, you know, with like a movie people, uh, you know, in the ER, uh, doctors, nurses kind of rushing around, many people, a crowd, the doctor was having an argument with the nurse. 
you know, what did you do to this man? You know, just like, you know, and then the following day, you know, I was in the ICU, thankfully, but I, you know, they had to use the paddles and, you know, all, all that. And then after that, I, I did get a pacemaker. So I do have that as a, as a safety net, but, you know, over the years, it's really been, you know, it's well over a decade now, really been on this journey where I'm, I'm trying to find answers. The closest I have been able to come is I have electrical problems. So nothing wrong, you know, with the heart per se, it's more the brain, I, w- I would say, but um, really no, no reason, just a lot of symptoms and things, but I, I'm dizzy all the time, been dizzy for, for years. And um, it has forced me to have boundaries because if I do not manage my, what I mean by that is my sleep, my work. If I don't have boundaries in my life, I actually do get sick, lightheaded, feel like I'm in a blackout, blood pressure, heart rate. I have a irregular heartbeat, you know, just weird things start happening if I, if I overdo it. So I have forced boundaries. Do you find that helpful? Here, so here's here's why I ask because it's of interest to me. But even my own personal experience. So I'm a person in long term recovery, which is itself a boundary. Like I don't I don't get to drink anymore, or else everything goes away. Like everything falls apart. So that's like a boundary that I have, which I've learned to be grateful for. I'm just curious what your perspective is. Is are those electrical issues and and the health issues you suffer from are have you is there a way that they're that you're grateful for them do they do they are they helpful i love that question no one's asked me but i i think about that too because it you know i work with clients a lot who have you know the anxiety and have the, the, these mental blocks and you know for you know a lot of people do struggle with those you know boundaries time management i have this sort of constant reminder like a it's a constant tap on my shoulder. You got to prioritize yourself here and, and your health. That's a number one. And it's just a constant tap on the shoulder always, because if I don't do it, I will get sick. I mean, I've been wheeled out of workplace on a gurney, you know, on a stretcher. I've uh, had an incident in an airport where I almost like I had to want to crawl under a chair and just sort of, I was losing consciousness just right there in the terminal. And I, and you have some, some PTSD type of, uh, uh, sure. from it. So I, I have to, it, it doesn't matter. I, I have to prioritize the health, which I think is a struggle for, you know, for a lot of people. And I think of problems a little bit differently to, to give you an idea. I actually, I was back at work five days later. I, I had to, I, I was so new. I didn't have any, you know, what paid time off and I had the financial need. So I remember, you know, it was a lot of virtual coaching. So I'd be you know, on the phone with clients all over the world, but I'd be, um, I'd be hooked up to like wires and heart monitors and all this kind of stuff, you know, right. so I'd be on the phone with someone and they're going on and on about like these little problems and goals. And I'd be just like praying that I would not black out. Like right. always the, this sounds a little dark, but I think when you go through that, there's something about the constant fear of death. Like as a constant, you, again, it's always that tap on the shoulder, you know, yeah. like, what are you doing? Every, everything you do in life has a cost. And, and yeah. I would say the cost of a thing is how much life it takes from you. And so I prioritize my worrying, my, you know, what, what am I worried about? What do I do with my time? It's all very, a, more of a conscious thing than it used yeah. to be. Yeah. 
Yeah, I appreciate that. And I love that perspective. It makes me think of, you know, the stoic philosophy, memento mori today. Remember that you will die, you know, just keep keep that in mind. I want to get into the book because I know some of this story is there in, in the book as well. So let tell, tell us about the book, a Half, The Half-Known Life, and how your experiences shape the writing of that and what you share in that book. Yeah, I actually wrote it over over about ten years, so it did take a little a little while. But it, it's not a typical self help. It, it's sort of you know the the cardiac arrest and the, as a coach, that sort of is in the background a little bit. It's in there, but it, it's more of a, a exploration type book where you know the half known life actually is is that phrase is from a, a quote in Moby Dick, and it's really about how we can't see ourselves. You know, like I've had you know, all kinds of clients, military generals, CEOs, psychologists, like all kinds. And you could be brilliant, but it doesn't matter how brilliant you are. A lot of times we can't see ourselves. Like we we always have like these little blind spots, right? So I think the purpose of the book is asking some really kind of difficult questions. You know, what takes your time? Like, why do you believe what you do? Like is, what's true in your life? Like really things that are more about identity, I would say. Yeah, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. And I appreciate that question. It's interesting because half-known life to me brings up two possible ideas, what you just shared. And then also, you know, Jung's idea that we sort of, we get to a certain point and then after that, like we live our life life almost in two halves. So I want to drill a little bit more down on your idea of half-known life, but I also want to, just before we sort of close out this chapter, you shared a little bit, but to share some more like what was true after the cardiac arrest that wasn't true before? Like, how did that, how do you live differently? I know you've talked about being conscious and being more aware of boundaries, but like, how else did that shape you? What, what did you, what's true of your life now that wasn't true before? Because you now live with this constant realization that life is short. I have reevaluated what I think the word ambition means. I, I think for most people, ambition is, you know, I can achieve this and that's where my worth is. For me, there's life ambition and career ambition are a little different. For me, life ambition is more, it's about the the day-to-day a little bit more. Like nothing's more important than your daily experience. If my daily experience today, I'm miserable and I'm chasing this, like, you know, I'm becoming this person. You know, I, I think for me, the realization that I don't have to become anyone, being yourself is really something you allow more than, than you work towards. And I always tell clients, like, who are you on a deserted island? And this has really guided my, a lot of my choices, if I did or didn't do something. On a deserted island, are you a lawyer, doctor? Are you a celebrity? Are you, are you popular or good looking or whatever it is? Yeah. No, you're on a deserted island. None of those things have any meaning because there's no other people to compare yourself against. You know, it's like yeah. comparison is the thief of joy. You know, that saying yeah. to me, you know, when, when you're laying on the deathbed, really, I mean, you're not thinking about those things. You're, you're thinking, uh, we don't realize sometimes the moments that we're in, how significant they will be later. And so for me, just, you know, the day-to-day experience and, and just really enjoying it, that's more ambitious than, than anything I could achieve. I love that. It's interesting. I was, I was speaking with somebody last week 
And they were reminding me of that movie Castaway with Tom Hanks, where he had to create a friend in the volleyball. Was it a volleyball? I think it was Wilson. Yeah, Wilson. Right? <laughs> so I, I just wrote down, who does Wilson think you are? Like, you know, like. Yeah. You're just a person. Just, you're just a yeah, person. Yeah. We're just a person. And I love that. And I know you do a lot of work. And of course, the, the book talks about this as well. So sort of like personal change and how we go through personal change, how much of that is tied up in identity. I'm going to be your client here for a little bit. Talk to me about how personal change happens, how that relates to identity. Identity is something I really care deeply about. So tell us more about personal change and identity. Yeah, I, I think, you know, kind of back to something I said before was for a lot of people, identity is about creating themselves, like doing, yeah. I, I got to do this and I'll become that. And it's how I want to be seen by, you know, by other people. Is that who we really are though? Are we any of those things? Because everything in your life is really all kind of a circumstance. Like if if I'm a CEO, well, actually on the flip side, let's say I'm I'm I wash dishes, which is absolutely fine. Say say I wash dishes. Would someone react differently to me there? Or if I was a military general? Well, most of the time, yeah, they would re- they would react. Because you know, when a military general enters a room, people stand up and they treat that person a certain way. Now, they don't know that me as a dishwasher, 10 years from now, I'll be a chief executive for some Fortune 5, maybe. Right. But I'm the same person I was at that time. You know, other people perceive me differently, but it, to, to me, it's all, it's all the same. I mean, you're, you're just a person there and, and you know, you're, you're, you're the same person you were. And I think people, too many people think their worth is tied up in that stuff. Yeah. So, you know, if you're my client and some of my clients, I mentioned, I worked with the military a lot of when they go through retirement, they go through this thing where it's like, well, who am I now? I was a soldier for this long. And if you're a soldier, usually it's a lifestyle. And especially say you're a general, you're a general long after you're retired, like in their mind, like I'm always a general people treat me like that. I mean, I've had people use their rank on me, even though they're retired and they've been retired. And I always say like, well, are are you a sergeant to your spouse? Do, do they call you sergeant? <laughs> um, do your kids call you sergeant? Right. You were a person before and you'll be a person after. You. The truth is you were never a sergeant. You were never were. You're not a nurse. You're not a sergeant. You're you. You're the person, you know, kind of behind yeah. all that. Yeah. Yeah. Can identity be good? I mean, in other words, What's the positive? Is there any upside to identity, thinking of ourselves as a certain something? I don't know if I would say it was good or bad. And I certainly wouldn't say it was bad, but I think it could be part of the exploration. You know, I think one purpose of life you could say is to explore, you know, what does it mean to, to be who I am? What, yeah. what does it mean to know myself? Who is that person? And I think part of life is exploring that. I think it could be, a, uh, you know, good provided you know kind of in the per- in in our mind there's always that tap on the shoulder that says you know you are not whatever role it is that's a role as long as there's an i think the awareness there and i think again when we get to that reactive everyday kind of behavior uh most people don't have the awareness there the constant reminder yeah and we make sense of the world based on these roles, titles, things like this. I know you. some of your work works on, that you work on impressions and what impression we make on people and all that. I'm just thinking like, I wonder if, you know, anybody's sort of 
sitting there watching the Oscars and realizing that person, you know, served them was their waitress eight years ago or something. Like, how do first impressions work and why are they so important? I'm asking because I know you've done a lot of studies behind this. Well, impressions, they're little people usually have this like thing where they they meet you. And when you meet someone, the first thing they do is like anytime you meet a stranger, say you go to a party or whatever, you know, what do you do? And it's it's like a resume, right? It's like introducing and leading with the resume. And again, it's it's the role. So people sometimes ask me, well, well, how can I interact with someone? Like, what do we talk about? That's a good question. And I think it's more important there to to be there and experience that moment with the person rather than just make it all about, well, I do this and I do this. And so what do you do? I do this and I do this. And we have a certain value there. And I think it's just saying, you know, Again, the awareness in that impression, do I know that person? I know about them, maybe, which is a little bit different than knowing them. You can know about someone or just, again, circumstances. It's just the circumstances right there. Catch me a year from now. Maybe I lead with something else. Yeah. But we crave the certainty, don't we? And that's what those roles and things like that give us. I told you we'd get back to uncertainty because you were mentioning at the beginning, your, yeah. your mentor, uh, you know, taught you the value of uncertainty of not having to know everything. And I mean, isn't it true? Like when I walk into a engagement and I meet somebody and they say, I'm a lawyer. Oh, okay. And it's, it's not good, but I suddenly fill in certain blanks. Whereas if I said, tell me about yourself, who knows how the person's going to answer, right? Doesn't that invite all kinds of uncertainty into the experience? Absolutely. Uncertainty. And, and I love this topic. I, I, you know, write on a lot too, is it makes people vulnerable. So, you know, we always try to define every, everything. We always have an answer. We understand religion. They're all neatly defined. We've got, you know, politics, you're this party or that party that's that you, you know, right. and if you sign up for one party, you inherit all those beliefs, I guess, or, you know, there's some, sure. I'm not generalizing everyone, but right. we, we have to define things because there's security there. This, the certainty, because uncertainty again makes us feel vulnerable, and when things are shaking or are shaky, our self identity that's shaky. You know, we we can't be wrong. We can't be, and when we get in arguments about opinions, it's usually, who, are we defending the truth? Not really. We're defending ourselves mostly, or yeah. are feeling like we're you know vulnerable or threatened in some way. So. Yeah, I, I think a lot of that is, you know, human nature and just trying to define and understand absolutely everything. And truth doesn't always enter into it in terms of, yeah, I, I think to to find if something is true or not, including our own identity, you've got to question it. You've got to look at different perspectives. You've got to collect facts. You've got to really be open to being wrong in order to be right. And I mm, yeah. don't know if every, I don't think everyone is doing that. That's an attitude. Yeah, I agree with yep. you. Like you have to be willing to be wrong or even willing to just say, I don't know. You can't need to be right. If it's there a need, go. it's yeah. not about truth. It's yeah. about confirming, you know, kind of your already held beliefs and, and seeking what you already believe to be true. Yeah, absolutely. Now, this also ties into personality as well. So I remember at the beginning, you you suggested that you were an introvert, not shy, but an introvert which has to do with where you get your energy from. Does, I, know you, I know you do some work on introversion and helping introverts feel more confident. 
So for me, like <laughs> I walk into a room and everybody's a friend, like there are no strangers in a room. I can't wait to meet everybody, but I realize that's not how everybody feels. So when you're working with an individual coaching, and I, I want to get into some of the corporate and organizational work you do as well, but when you're working with an individual coaching, how do you help those people who are more introverted find a sense of confidence, like get, get out of, get out in the world? Often with introverts, I've seen accompanying that is some anxiety to give a common example, like fear of public speaking, that kind of thing. Sure. So there's so much self-help out there, or, or in some cases, shelf-help, as I call it, like right. it just sort of sits there. And then, you know, people read it and, and some of it's very good. So I'm not, you know, anything right. particular bashing it, but, you know, people tend to follow that stuff. And then, you know, after a month or two, they go back to the habits they had before. So for, for, for me, it's really, you know, there's all these tips and things, you know, like, you know, to get over public speaking, you've heard, we've all heard the advice, like picture people in their underwear or something like that. <laughs> but there's always something that you have to change to fix what's wrong. And I think a big turning point for me was a lot of us, especially those with real bad anxiety, we treat ourselves worse than we would treat anybody else. Right. You know, certainly people we loved and we don't treat ourselves as if we're someone that's worth loving. So I think a big turning point for me was, what if there's nothing to be fixed here? Well, what if I just owned, yeah. however I show up, what if I'm just cool with it? If I turn red like a tomato or, you know, sweat through my shirt or whatever, Right. what if I was, however I show up, what if I was truly not just telling myself that, but what if I was really just didn't care and was okay with it. Yeah. But when that happened, suddenly a lot of the symptoms I was worried about anyway went away on their own. And I started when I, you know, I'm you know, speaking in front of big groups, I would speak to the group just like a person, just like I'm talking to you, just, you know, because we get lost in this, like it's a crowd, it's people and they're judging. But most of us are okay. Introverts are usually okay one-on-one. -on -one. So if I treat the crowd and, and really talk to them as people, they're just people right? The stakes are pretty low. You know, oftentimes say I'm sweating. I'll just, sometimes I'll even make a joke. Like, uh, you know, I took a shower. I was running short of time. So I just left my clothes on, but you know, it humanizes you and right. other people are often feeling what you feel too. So why not relate together? You know, I, I think just, and, and really feeling that a, a lot of that, you know, that anxiety went away and took care of itself. Now, you know, even intellectually, if I understand something and aren't particularly nervous, sometimes my body, because the way it's sure. wired, it will still do what yeah. it does. I just own it and I'm okay with it. And however I show up, doesn't, it really doesn't bother me near, nearly as much. Yeah. It, it, to me, it's, this is one of those great paradoxes because we think that the best among us are the invulnerable and yet we line up to listen to Brene Brown or like Rich Roll, any of these people who have very publicly shown their vulnerability, their authenticity, their, their downside, their weak side. Like we can't, it's almost like we can't get enough of that. And yet we have this belief that for us, it's somehow different. For us, we need to be impenetrable, invulnerable, you know, a fortress. Yeah. And in, in fact, you know, to circle back to the, the beginning of our conversation, the, the individual, I said, the leader that, you know, always, yeah. been, he would always say things like, you know what? I don't have it all figured out. I don't know everything. There was something like, I, I think it's 
charisma in the moment. And it's saying, I'm a person. And you gravitate towards those people who are real and genuine and authentic and people you can relate to. And to me, that's that's leadership right there is, is saying, you know, I don't have it all figured out. I'm open. I'm open. I'm open to doing things better. I'm open to being wrong. And people want to follow those people. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a good segue into talking about organizations as well, or organizations, because I know you work with organizations as well. So I'd love to hear, because, you know, I know in my in my own work, it's often very difficult to create a sense of psychological safety, which is the ability to not be perfect, the ability to be vulnerable, the ability to make mistakes and to continue on. How do you work with organizations to help them find that sense of, of vulnerability, authenticity, psychological safety, failability, whatever you want to call it? How do you work with organizations to find that? Well, I think I've worked a lot with startups and you know, primarily what I do after I got out of more of the one-on-one coaching was how do I develop training programs that really do things like reduce the turnover, drive, you know, customer experience, things like that. So a lot of training programs. And you know, what happens when a company grows and they're, you know, what worked as a small company soon stops working when they become a medium-sized company. And what happens is you, you know, when senior leaders have line of sight into the front line, you know, people. Now you're hiring all these middle managers and now you're only getting, you don't really understand the experience right. from those that are on the front lines anymore because you've got just tons of middle management. So you, you lose as a company, you lose awareness, you lose awareness of what it's really like. And then people also stop feeling heard yeah. and then they feel like they're just sort of, you know, a cog in the machine and, and, you know, all that, that kind of thing. And you lose, and then you start treating employees like roles and not people. And that's really where you see, you know, the turnover skyrocket. So I think it's really about having trainings and really engaging and understanding. And there's a variety of ways you do that, but you've got to have managers that understand how to treat people like people, how to speak to them, how to keep them out of threat states, how to empower them, how to not micromanage, which tends to drive people away. Yeah. You know, how do you allow people to stretch and, 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 and how do you deliver trainings like that that can be digested? Because the minute you say to someone, I'm going to give you this training, this 101, most people are going to say, I already know that. I already know all that. So yeah, that's the trick there is giving them something as an IV drip that they can that's digestible and can be absorbed, that resonates, a lot of stories, a lot of engagement that really helps to shift the culture there. That's where you start. Yeah. And you're right. There's so much to unpack there, but it is more than new knowledge, isn't it? Because it's rare, very rare. I don't know about you, but it's, it's it's very rare for me to give a training presentation where I'm presenting something no one has ever thought of. Or I mean, it, it sometimes happens. And certainly, I you know, if, if I'm presenting research or something. But isn't it true that most of the training you give, to your point, people kind of already know the facts. It's the, it's the way you present it and the culture you create, right? Yeah, I would say totally agree. I I think, you know, people maybe have heard something, but they're just not doing it. Right. In a lot of cases. So then how can I break through then? How can I get through to them in a way that's digestible? And it's all about, you know, habits. And they're used to being in these, again, that reactive everyday thing where I'm only worried about putting the fire out that's right now. And when you're doing that, you become, and I talk about this a lot in my trainings, is 
it's the difference between being transactional and being interactional. Yeah. And there are so different ways to be because most people in our daily lives were very transactional. Like you walk into work, how are you? Good, you? We're not really interacting with someone. Right. How are you? Not too bad. Oh, it's Monday, hanging in there. We say all kinds of things that aren't real answers or real questions. They're right. just pleasantries. It's just, you know, habits. Right. Right. And that also relates somewhat to your concept of roles versus people, right? I mean, I, I wonder, like people are, a lot of uh, individuals are trying to understand the great resignation or quiet quitting, all of these trends that we see in the workplace. And it seems to me so much of that is related to the fact that the roles have changed. And because we don't know how to interact with people, because we're not interactional, we're transactional. We don't know how to interact with people. We don't really know how to get our hands or companies often don't know how to get their hands around the marketplace that's changing. And I think a lot of that is to, you know, learning what's helped me is learning how to ask the right questions of of employees. You know, a lot of companies I've seen, it's, you know, authoritative where, you know, if you don't perform it certain amount, then there's the door. That doesn't make people feel warm. You know, it it doesn't. And for me, it's, hey, again, I don't have everything figured out. I trust you 100% as a team member. I absolute trust. Yeah. And let's talk about the process. Let's ask each each other for feedback. I want to know how I can support you better. What's working for you? How do you think you did performance-wise in that that call that we had? How do you think you did there? And let's have it be interactional. And your health comes first, absolutely, hundred yeah. percent. This is this is a job, and health comes first. And I want to support you with that. So, I think it's shifting that how sh- shifting communication in many ways. Yeah, shifting communication. And I, I I also know you talk a lot about about the difference between management and leadership. And and I'm just curious whether this this plays into it as well. To me. Like management is sort of ensuring that people in certain roles do certain things. Leadership is a is a much bigger conversation, isn't it? Yeah, I think management is more task driven. Yeah, it's more yeah. checking, you know, doing tasks. And a lot of people think they're good leaders too, because no leader thinks they're bad. Usually, it's the yeah. lack of awareness, right? No, no one's like, you know, right. I'm a terrible leader. But I, I had a leader once, and this this one instance struck me oddly, I'd say, in in, in a good way. It was for a neuroscience company and mm-hmm. they're, you know, they work, you know, we're contracted out and we work with different companies to help them sort of, you know, shift their mindsets and culture and things. She said, you know, I, I don't want you to view me as a hypocrite because I preach all these things, but I don't even know if I'm doing all of it. So I want to let you know that I'm, I'm open. I am open to being better and for feedback. I want to be vulnerable. And I said, you know, by the mere fact that you're even saying that means you're not a hypocrite because, you know, n- no bad leader again comes back and says, you know, I'm, I'm bad. It never happens. But if you can just say, be comfortable in the uncertainty that I don't know and, and say, I am open. I always want to be better. I'm a person. And you ask for feedback all the time from everyone. And, and if you're working, if you have a company that's really dedicated to always, they're asking for feedback, self-awareness is like number one. And they just want to continuously get better. That's a company that has something figured out. Yeah, I love that. I love that. How does that then shape the way the company acts? We're not gonna we're, we're not gonna have time to really unpack the idea of personal habits, but I want to talk about sort of corporate habits and corporate behavior. How does that shape the way the company acts? What does that look like? I mean, as you're kind of 
designing training to help lead companies to that place where there's more leadership than management. What are some of the behavioral changes that you start to see in the company itself? I think it's a step back to to manage. Well, there's there's got to be more trust there, but I, I think yeah. a lot of companies I've encountered really struggle with bandwidth, individual bandwidth. It's like we are we have these objectives and we're executing them. Now go execute it. Go and and it's like constant on them, on them about it, which is fine, but if people do not feel supported, if they do not feel if they don't if they feel like it's becoming transactional and they maybe they feel utterly overwhelmed and again they're just this task manager yeah. and they feel detached and disconnected i mean they'll leave they'll leave you know i'm i'm amazed when managers don't have regular meetings to to discuss the experience itself so in yeah. other words i don't just want to talk to you if i'm talking to my team member i don't want to just talk to you about did you do everything by this day i want to say what is your experience as an employee right now, and how can we make that better? And let's work together on that. So I, I I don't hear those types of conversations a lot. And I also find that if you've done it right, a, a leader should not always have to work in the business. They should be working on the business. Yeah. So I, I feel like when there's a bandwidth issue, a lot of times the managers are putting fires out all the time. They're too much in the business and not working on the business, if that makes sense. It does. But it, to me, and it's, you know, it's, this was a surprising theme of this conversation, which is this whole idea of uncertainty. Like I didn't, as I was thinking about talking with you today, I wasn't thinking about the power of uncertainty, but that's ends up what we ended up talking about a lot. And again, doesn't that go back to this like, fear of uncertainty, man, you know, management, like traditional KPIs work really well in companies because did you do this? Yes or no check. Did you do that? Yes or no check. Right. But to really exhibit trust, to exhibit openness, to say, you know, maybe here's how I think we should do it, but you tell me how you do it. Like that's a, that's a scary thing to be, especially for a manager who wants to eventually be a C-suite individual. Right. Yeah. I, I think, you know, to me, and there's five or six of them, I think that have been, you know, in, in research, but to me, there are two primary, I would call threatened states that I see a lot. One is the uncertainty. And I think when a manager is, again, working too much in the business, they're not right. able to have those conversations. And, and really, um, so it's certainty. And also, I think status is, you know, w- when you feel like you're, yeah. you're never, I don't, I don't even know if I'm doing a good job because you don't tell me. And right. e- every day is like the wild, wild west because we're always, in, you know, putting out fires. I don't feel certain about it. I don't feel clarity at all. And I don't know where I stand because a lot of people do get their self-worth a lot from, you know, how it's reflected back to them. Sure. So I, I think really what leaders are good ones, they have to be master communicators. I mean, master. And I, again, back to the, how we started the conversation was the leader that really mentored me. I mean, it made me want to work harder when he was just like, you know, he would send me a random message and say, you're tearing it up. Yeah. And I mean, he didn't realize that for the next week I was walking around like, yeah, wow. Like, like, you, yeah, like it, it wasn't just a generic team, like good job. It right. was a heartfelt out of the blue right. call out, singled me out in a good way. Yeah. 
And he didn't realize how that really transformed my experience of it was interactional, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It was a person. He cared at that moment, you know? Yeah. I want to give people an opportunity to find you, but I have one last question, which is I want you to imagine sort of 15 to 20 years in the, in the future where we all were able to sort of find the power and the freedom to be vulnerable, to be uncertain, to find these ways to speak into each other's lives, kind of like your mentor did, what would change? Like, how, how can you imagine? I, I always like to sort of create a positive view of the world if, if you were able to really help shape the world. What would that look like 15 to 20 years from now? I think the way we'd work would be totally different. I mean, right now we talk about like we have our personal lives and our work lives. And I, right. for me, it's all is all just life. You know, there is no work life. That's a idea that you're, there is no work life. It's just you, you at all times. And I think we need to get rid of that idea that, you know, there's this work me and I need to, you know, what does it mean? Again, that term ambition, what, what does that mean? Um, is my fulfillment coming from work? No, because again, that's just a role. That's just a circumstance. You know, I am who I am at all times. And I, I think the way that we interact, the way that we work, the types of people that we bring into organizations for roles, you know, rather than just, again, checking the boxes on a resume, I think the dynamic of how we work, I don't think it has to be as stressful. I don't think we would have to work as much or as hard. I think you'd see a lot more cohesion in the, in, in the workplace. I love that vision. I love that vision. How can people find you in the world on the web? How do people connect with it, with you if they want to? Uh, they can go to my website. I have all the social media linked up in there. rslindner.com, R-S-L-I-N-D-N-E-R.com. They can go to my book's website, halfknownlifebook.com, Amazon as well. That's where my, my book is. They can check me out on Amazon. Excellent. And all those links will be in the show notes. Brian Lindner, thank you. This was a great conversation. I'm so excited to share you with my audience. I had a blast. Thank you so much for having me.